Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. Yes, there is a problem. Even if it was only one or two mass shootings a year, that would be a problem. That freedom is the freedom to do what you ought to do, not the freedom to do whatever you necessarily want to do. And so you have the freedom to carry this gun, which means you ought to be good if you're going to use it. I do think something that is inherently valuable is purpose, right? My thing is, especially for like people in America, one of the biggest reasons why mental health is so bad is I do think people have a loss of values. They have a loss of meaning. People are trying to find type of meaning in their life. They're trying to find some type of significance of their life constantly. Do you want a great website like this? This is my podcast website where I direct the audience to come to watch the content, listen to the content, read the blogs, and much, much more. If you want to have your own customizable podcast website, then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage, and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Are you enjoying today's podcast episode? I really hope you do. And I really hope you enjoy the fact that I have an amazing guest talking with me and having this great discussion. If you, as an individual, personally have your own podcast, and maybe you want to have great guests on your podcast as well, well, I got a deal for you. In my description, there is a link to something called Podmatch. Make sure to join that link through my affiliate link so you can sign up to get matched up with other podcast hosts and podcast guests so you make sure you are never missing an episode without a productive guest to have an amazing conversation with. Podmatch is similar to any other kind of matching site for the most part, and it's super easy to use. Just $6 a month, and you can have a guest for each and every podcast episode that is tailored to your specific topic. So again, join the link in my description and join Podmatch now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we are back at it again today. And unfortunate news, we had one episode that is lost in the archives because I forgot to unmute Mike. So you will never hear that episode, but hopefully we can kind of touch upon a few things that we discussed in today's episode. And it should be an inter- interesting discussion as we plan to talk about uh, the mass shooting problem in America and whether or not there is even a mass shooting problem in America. And of course, I have myself, Riddell, and my co-host, Jonathan. And today we have a guest, Wick TV, and he's going to come on have the conversation with us, and it should be very, very interesting. So I'm going to start out, let you introduce yourself, and uh, tell the people what you're about. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me on this. I'm very excited to be here. I listened to a few of your uh, podcasts, and I I, I enjoyed the conversation, so it's good to be a part of it. Uh, My name is Wick, uh, or that's what I go by on the internet at least, and I do... uh, I generally host uh, political debates. Uh, it's a cross-ideological space, right, where we bring together people from the left and the right and the center and try to kind of get a conversation going about topics of the day. Um, yeah, that's what I do. That's who I am. And uh, here we are. Yeah, it was very interesting because I have caught a couple of your shows, of course. Um 
I've seen a lot of very interesting and some heated debates. Um, I saw a good number with uh, Desti on it. Desti was kind of the gateway to uh, your channel, of course. And obviously, my podcast here is one to kind of bridge those conversations as well, find nuanced solutions. And especially, I am not fond of how political bias kind of toxifies people to the point where they're not even able to have these conversations. So for someone else who's doing something very similar, um, I might as well ask, what kind of got you into doing that type of content? And why do you think it's important? Well, um, first of all, it's always important to know what people actually think, right? Um, there is this tendency that we have to shut down conversation or to extricate ourselves from from groups or communities that we feel um, don't represent us or we don't like or have views that are kind of the polar opposite of ours. I think that's a mistake. Uh, it, it becomes impossible to know what other people are thinking and what other life experiences are being had and how events are being interpreted by other sides. And if even if I still think that uh, the people who are politically opposed to me are um, nefarious, it is still important to know what they actually think rather than a caricature of what they think. Now, what got me into it initially, right, was uh, I, I never watched podcasts. I, I was never a big uh, YouTube guy or anything like that. Uh, I happened to be listening to some music on YouTube and was very tired didn't know what was going on. Hold on, my camera's being weird. Okay, and uh, basically uh, got to a Prime Kai debate. Uh, came up on my feed. I don't know why. I saw like 12 people in a box. And I was like, what the hell is this? I clicked on it out of curiosity. They were talking about a subject. I forget the subject, but I remember feeling like these people are dumb and wrong. They're, they're uneducated on what they're talking about. And they're simply wrong. All of them, all sides here are, are, are just wrong. And the uh, host of that show, Prime Kai, was like, well, we do call-ins all the time, so if you want to be on this show, come on in. I was like, okay, I'll come on in. And uh, so that's how I got introduced to the space. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. basically I was mad that everyone else was wrong, and so I needed to come in and tell them they were wrong. So. <laughs> Here we are. I respect it. I respect it. That's definitely how I feel sometimes, um, especially in starting this podcast. Um, especially when you hear like so many different point of views and you hear them and you hear both sides and you notice that you have some good points, but you're getting so emotional that mm -hmm. it, you're going down a, a terrible rabbit hole right now. And yep. there's no pro progressing in the conversation. It just stalemated to a, I want to get a got you moment on the other person. And that doesn't yeah. really solve anything. So it's 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 uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Um, do you feel that way, Jonathan? Back in college, I haven't been in college in, in a while. Do you feel well, that way? I feel that way on two fronts. Actually, I feel that way in in college. You know, they're not really. Um, I mean, bringing it in right into that. Uh, what you need to know with the overruling, um, colleges are not really higher education uh, establishments anymore. They're not institutions for education at all. More like indoctrination. Uh, at least that's been my experience. I'm sure there's other colleges. And, you know, I'm on a relatively big campus. Um, and, yeah, I mean, people aren't very interested in my perspective on things, um, especially when they share it in most of the ways that conservatives share it, just like you're dumb and you're stupid. Like, I totally sympathize with Mr. Wick on the big panel discussions. Like, I guess there's this show called The Whatever Podcast. 
that's blowing up right now. And all it is is these this one conservative guy they bring on with a panel of super lib women and they just own him. But they do it in such the wrong way. Like the the whole premise of that show is to like it's like a five hour long podcast, as I understand. And the whole show is is just for like the, the two minute clips of some poor girl just getting decimated. And that really it does no good. Those poor girls are probably I mean, they, they probably don't care because they feel as if they're correct, but it doesn't actually look good for the conservatives or, or even the center of people who are on that podcast because it just makes them look mean. And, and that's not someone you want to have a, a nuanced or even a, a pleasant conversation with. Exactly. I definitely agree. And honestly, a podcast like that, I feel like nothing is said. I, I feel like it's just yeah. talking and no points are really being made. And I, I try to watch one of the episodes for them, and I'm like, you guys are not going anywhere with this conversation. It's just yeah. a bunch of, like, drama going on. It's, and Yeah, it's because they approach it with closed minds. They don't approach it in, like, oh, I might be wrong in this area. They're like, oh, I know I'm right in this area. And so they just have no interest in changing their minds anyways. I mean, it's entertaining for people. So, you know, yeah. of course people are going to like it. So... Before we get into our What You Need to Know segment, so everybody's up to speed, I'm going to read off a review, and this is from Andy Cohen. They said, I was nervous about listening to this podcast, but I'm glad I found it. There's a legit attempt to be balanced, and that's a brave thing to do to try these days. Very nice delivery, thoughtful, and dang, you do a nice job. Keep it up, and thank you. Appreciate it, of course, you know. Um, every time, you know, someone appreciates what we're doing here on the podcast, I, I definitely want to shout you out, but if you guys want to talk crap about me, I'll shout you out too. So make sure to leave a review, whether it's the five star, four stars, okay too. And I'll make sure to shout you out a future episode. So let's get into the, what you need to know segment. What is going on currently in America that we need to talk about? Well, here's a couple things and then we'll dive into which one finds you guys deem more interesting. Um, uh, the Moore v. Harper ruling has been rejected by the Supreme Court. And this is when I talked about the Moore v. Harper situation. That's actually one of my more popular episodes when I was like, man, this is a horrible idea. And I'm glad they were like the Supreme Court has agreed to that sentiment. Um, some other kind of interesting news is the Justice Department concluded that the Jeffrey Epstein's death was enabled by negligence and misconduct by prison staff. Wow shocking of course um the uk to invest 26 million dollars in ai medical tools just kind of elaborates the evolution of ai in society uh the supreme court ruling against affirmative action especially for institutions like harvard and i got one more that i forgot to mention earlier before we started that i just saw and it's apparently google and maybe facebook and instagram banning news in Canada. So it was due to an online news act that the famous Canadian president passed. And a lot of these social media companies are thinking about banning the news that these Canadians can uh, see from their platforms outright. So a lot of interesting things going on in the world IP address is is located in canada they won't be able to see news am i understanding that correctly from google yeah they won't be able to see it completely bad that sounds good yeah apparently the online news act that uh what's his name trudeau is that you say oh justin trudeau yeah prime minister of canada 
Yeah, um, fun guy. So apparently he passed an act that said tech giants would have to pay news outlets for clicks that direct people to their platform. So, um, yeah, Google's not happy about that. So it's a financial thing. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Google, Facebook slash Instagram is not happy. Big one, in my opinion, is what Elon wants to do with Twitter when it comes down to because Twitter is like the primary news outlet for a lot of these yeah. uh, younger individuals. So um, what do you guys think? Let me let me hear some thoughts about what's going on. I am very interested, me personally, just because of my my current you know position in life with this overturning of affirmative action. Um, and just from my perspective, you know, there was a, a large swath of scholarships that I could not apply for because of my, uh, pallor of skin, uh, let alone sexual orientation. Um, I was excluded from thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of scholarships just because of that. Fortunately, I was still admitted, so I don't know what this overturning will do much for scholarships, but just in general, universities are, are not very friendly to people who, um, you know, obviously in the Harvard case, it's specifically against uh, Asian folks because they do much better on many tests than uh, even white people do. But I think this is a, a good thing, you know, judging on the content of people's character and their merits. I saw a tweet. Um, I don't necessarily want to say the person's name. I don't remember it accurately enough anyways, who specifically tweeted out in response to this saying that black people will not be able to thrive in a meritocracy. That's why we needed affirmative actions. And for me, that's like an offensive thing because I know many, I mean, one of my, my dad's colleagues is the president of a university and I don't know. I just don't get how someone can legitimately say that. Like it's just it's just so, astounding to me. This is it's an it's an interesting um issue. Um this case again, which uh I believe was uh Harvard versus the students for fair admissions. That was a case that overturned a two thousand and three case, right? That uh made it okay to have racial preferences and admissions. Scholarships, it's not gonna touch. Scholarships has nothing to do with the case. And I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to really uh, be changed in that way. Um, this isn't a new concept though, right? Uh, California, uh, back in the 90s, the late 90s, uh, Prop 209, they banned racial preferences. Uh, and after they did, uh, people of color started succeeding more. Um, the dropout rate was astronomical before the change, and after the change, it uh, dropped significantly. Graduation rates rose. Uh, great GPAs for people of color rose. Uh, it had a lot of really good outcomes for these communities. Um, and whereas I think that there is something to be said about making sure that uh, people have equal access there is a tendency for people to overreact and try to try to force these kind of percentages of of uh, you know attendance and and uh, admissions and get a certain amount uh, a quota if you will of of different people from different backgrounds and things and 
I uh, yeah, I, I I've I've never been a proponent of that. I think that's the wrong way to con uh, combat systemic issues and things like that. It, the the way to fight against racism isn't with more racism. We need uh we need a solution that is more colorblind. Frankly, and I know it's not popular to say. I know it's not nice to say, right? But it's just true. Um, I think that this is a good thing. Now, the next thing they need to do though, and they should do, ban legacy admissions stop that shit too because that also mm. isn't a meritocratic system and so when colleges mm. give points to legacy admissions that is also a problem that needs to be solved and we need yeah. to get rid of that too so I, f I find the legacy one a little bit more interesting especially when those individuals some individuals from these institutions because like I went to a private school and one of the uh, big th ways that this private school would get funding is from donors. We would, there's a whole job you could do on campus where you can call people, say, hey, donate to this institution so we can get X, Y, and Z. So I'm curious on how that would go about when it comes down to legacy admissions for these people who have a long line of people, um, family members that went to said institution, and then they made it a complete stop saying, okay, I'm not going to just put you in my institution just because you have this last name. I know your family gives me a lot of money. So that type of incentive will be will be tough. But to be fair, this is a more of a private institution situation. So inherently, the laws that govern it would be different anyway. Um, with that said, you know, coming from a man of color, I'll be honest, in terms of affirmative action, initially, the implementation, I understood to kind of even out the playing field, um, especially back in the day, to get you know, people of color, people in the more impoverished communities up to speed and try to level them out with the rest of the America, of course. But as of right now and how it's implemented, and especially when it comes down to uh, higher education institutions, I agree it's it's not fair and it doesn't really help these communities. We've seen the statistics on how you're forcing people, for example, to go to Harvard that is, you know, probably not even suited to go there. They do very poorly and it just brings percentages way down. So I'm curious to see how this goes afterwards when it comes to the higher education situation following to potentially the workplace. Do we think that they should also make it to uh, kind of ban affirmative action for the workplace as well? That's a good question. Um... I think I could see a stronger argument for it to be in place in certain jobs and things. And given that we do have data, right, that, um, uh, for example, uh, if you have a black sounding name, um, you're more likely to be rejected in your application. You know, we can argue why that is, whether it's racism, whether it's other reasons, but we know that this data exists. Now, uh, whether or not, right, we want to fix that through uh, trying to put in forth affirmative action, I don't know. I don't think it works. I don't think it's solving the problem. And that's that's the at the end of the day, right? We could have the best intentions in the world, but if what you're doing doesn't actually solve the problem, I don't think it's it's very helpful. Um, again, if this were 1983, we could have a conversation that it might be necessary. But this is 2023. Um, it is no longer as necessary. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't like. Uh, basing 
things on race. Whereas I do realize that race does play a factor whether we want it to or not in how people treat you. It shouldn't, nor should we reify it by continually legislating it into reality. So that's my thoughts. Fair enough, fair enough. And uh, Jonathan, in terms of the scholarship thing, I will say this, that I definitely understand where you're coming from, but, you know, aligning with Wick, what Wick said, a lot of these scholarships are made by people mm -hmm. that want to give it to certain people. So you can't really tell these people. Oh, sure. What you, I do, the little caveat with that. Is there any scholarships specifically for white straight males? Do they no. exist? I am so curious no. if they exist. That's what I've seen. I looked through, I'm not going to say what my university's name is, but I looked through every, pretty much, I might have missed a couple, but I looked through every single, because I applied for every single one that I can. And I totally understand that there are certain uh, scholarships that are like by people's name, that are for, you know, people who lost family members, who lost their fathers, these sorts of things. But when I get to a scholarship that's specifically for like, those who identify with different uh, uh, species of individuals and only people of that, like, well, if we're going to do that, like at least give me one, like, come on now guys. And, and, you know, I understand the ones that are for, you know, helping people who really need help because as I, I mean, with the help of, of other people, you know, I can afford college and that's a blessing. And I, and I don't discount that. And I appreciate highly those that, deserve and got the good grades and did the work to get into college and they need a little bit of help and we should help those kind of people 100 percent. i totally agree because if i was in that position i would want the help and i would be upset if i didn't get the help but when it comes to boosting numbers artificially and saying like oh you are excluded even though you're perfectly qualified for the scholarship and deserving of it or this admission or, or this job position whatever it might be when we're excluding more qualified people, I think that's where the problem lies. Mm. I, if, I, if I may, um, to move off of scholarships only a little uh, and back to kind of admissions, mm -hmm. there is something that the, um, the ruling recently didn't touch, right? Uh, but it is going to be something that is going to be the hot topic coming up in the next five to 10 years. Uh, the disparity of gender roles in colleges mm. and universities. Men are attending at lower and graduating, mm. to be clear, at very, very low rates. And there's mm -hmm. going to be uh, rates, I should say. And there's going to be this temptation, right, to kind of give this. And some colleges are, are actually talking about this now. Like this is in discussion now of making it more attractive to men and in doing this kind of affirmative action for men to get mm. men into higher education and universities because mm. they're just not going anymore. Um, mm. it, it's the roles have reversed in, in most fields. There's a few exceptions, right? Like engineering, things like that. But yeah, yeah. Um, there is going to be this uh, temptation to do this kind of affirmative action to men to get these numbers up. And I think, again, that's the wrong way to do it. We I agree. cannot... We cannot tackle this problem, and it is a problem to be clear, right? It is a problem to be clear because uh, there is no greater indicator of future financial success 
than whether or not you have a college degree, rightly or wrongly. That's just how. Would you say I would? Uh, I would actually push back on that uh, for well, a second. Actually, um, I thought it was high school diplomas that really is the strongest. People who drop out of high school have a lot of financial difficulties later on in life, and that's not indicative, I would say, of education, but of sheer commitment. Right, they can't commit to doing something that they're supposed to do. That's also probably true, right? Uh, So these aren't contradictory things. Like, so yes, uh, of those who graduate from high school, like you can, it's a two-tiered path. There are people who are just have a high school degree, but then you have people with a college degree. Mm. They have much Mm. more earning potential than someone with just a high school uh, high school degree, and the person with a high school degree has more earning potential the person without a high school degree but in both cases the best indicator is the college degree for for financial success very interesting i I will be curious and in terms of the male affirmative action situation i agree that thing is not going to work you can't force guys to want to go to school if they don't want to go to school at the end of the day it should be that that simple for people you can't force people to have uh get an education if they don't want to get an education uh, with that said i am curious in regards to the to the to the metric of success a couple years down the line as the social media entrepreneurship wave and the statistics around it keeps on growing especially considering the most inspiration that people are getting at a young age are now from social media content creators and people like from podcasts it may or may not be a good thing but i am curious to see how those numbers will look later down the line will it be bad for society will be good for society my current stance is as long as people kind of frame becoming a content creator as something anybody can do and it's different from becoming an athlete everybody knows that only very special people become an athlete. Only mm-hmm. very few people. You are constantly told if you do not grind, if you don't even make six foot three, you're not going to the NBA. But when it comes to social media, the difference is that everybody thinks that they all can be a social media content creator. Yeah. And that false sense of, I would say, guarantee of a potential huge job could be damaging or it could be inspiring i'm curious of course down the line um i do want to ask you something jonathan and i don't really want to touch upon the google stuff because canada is just crazy that's 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 my sentiment canada is crazy um i I don't know what to do with that country anymore but from a conservative viewpoint no go on please (laughs) from a conservative viewpoint what do you think about more v harper being rejected because i honestly think this is one of the worst things i've ever seen so what do you, okay. what do you think about it so i'm i was trying to brush on it a little bit i want to understand that i got this correct it's it's a gerrymandering uh correct it has to do with gerrymandering and the gop was attempting to gerrymander and that got brought up to the to the supreme court so apparently and i believe it's south carolina but mm-hmm. there are republicans over there was big into something called the independent state legislative theory 
Mm-hmm. And that basically, the idea is it gives them a whole lot of power, especially yeah. when it comes to elections. And like you said, when it comes to gerrymandering. And it doesn't, and their kind of proposal is that state courts, governors, the leg- um, other branches, they can't say anything. You guys can't touch me. You guys can't tell me what to do. So I'll be able to do whatever I want in this state, and you guys can't tell me what to do. So that that was the basic principle, very, very simply for people who are listening. And uh, the Supreme Court is like, no, are you crazy? <laughs> like, that, are you are you insane? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. That's I don't think like so we, we had this discussion before, like, should a state be allowed to, you know, become this kind of, for lack of a better term, cesspool of ideology, whether it's California with liberals or Texas and Florida with the conservative values, like should the states be allowed to do that? And I, I would, I would lean on the side, like I said before, of yes, if they want to do that, they can do that, but you can't coerce your people into doing it through something like gerrymandering through, you know, trying to get this, you know, conglomeration power and forcing, because that's tyranny. And that's antithetical to what the United States did. So I would oppose um, coercing anybody into any kind of decision, whether it be conservatives doing it or or liberals doing it. Uh, any thoughts, Wick? Before we uh, move on to the main I don't topic, know enough about this one to 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 to. I I would say that in general, um, as a concept, I think that um, states' rights, while important should be overridden by the federal uh system uh if they go on. but again i don't know much about this case hey yeah. no worries no worries um Sorry. <laughs> i will say that I, you know at the end of the day i'm glad uh it was overturned um the, i did read something saying that they should have uh when it comes down to this specific you know case this should have been nipped in the bud like at the very 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 beginning like this shouldn't even had went to the supreme court so the fact that it did there may be some consequences in terms of how, what south carolina does uh, moving forward well we're gonna have to see how that kind of turns out but with that said let's get into the main topic of the day when it comes to mass shootings I guess the very first question, I'm going to start off with Wick, of course. Very first question, does America have a mass shooting problem? I mean, yes, there is a problem. Even if it was only one or two mass shootings a year, that would be a problem. I think that with the level of violence and gun violence specifically that we see in America, um, but not just gun violence, but violence in general, it is concerning and we do need to do something about that i think we do absolutely have a mass shooting problem in america yes we do all right jonathan what do you think um i'm you know so i don't disagree you know we have a a terrific amount of violence here um i think it's interesting to see how people so i'm curious to see how um you both will define mass shooting but you know, when I think of mass shootings, I, I do not distinguish entirely. There's a little bit of a contextual and uh, there's a little bit of a difference in general when you look at something like a school shooting versus simply the mass violence you see by a gang. But a lot of times those shootings also include, I believe the limit now is six people to be considered a mass shooting. Um, and that happens routinely almost every other week in Chicago, in New York, in these big cities. Um 
so yeah, I would say we we certainly do have um, a mass shooting problem. Certainly, how we deal with that will be one thing. Yeah, I very much agree. And I have also seen a lot of varying definition in terms of what a mass shooting is. Um, from what I've seen, you've seen six. I've seen the general consensus is being is around four. I saw four. four. So okay. around four more deaths is a, is a good number. And I looked up some statistics um, when it comes to mass shootings. Over 200 mass shootings so far this year. You know, amazing. Uh, over 600 mass shootings each year of the last three years. And when they did a kind of comparison statistics compared to other countries, and in terms of the, the quota of four, they said the U.S. has 101 mass shootings from 1998 to 2019. Um, and the second country is Russia which was like 25 and then the rest of the countries all have single digits. So like the United States compared to everybody else, when it comes to four or more deaths from that time period is, is it's It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, why do you, why do, why do we think America has that type of problem, especially when you compare it to other countries, other more developed countries at the very least? I mean, it's, that's a, that's the question, right? Um, the easy answer is uh, guns. We have more. Uh, there's more access, easier access in other countries to guns. Um, and so it's just easier to use this weapon and this tool to enact the violence that you want to enact. Um, while that's an easy answer, I don't think it's a complete answer. I don't think it's a, a I think it's a comfortable answer, but it's not something that really fully describes what's going on in America specifically. We have a combination, um, a multivaried, uh, you know, uh, it's like a Gordian knot of problems, I guess is the best way I can say it. If you pull on one thread, there's a bunch of other threads that are connected to it. Gun access is a major one, right? Then we have uh, the problems with uh, healthcare and mental health care specifically. We have a problem with our culture in general of being it being okay to do violence against people you don't like, right? And there's this general malaise and despair that we're seeing um, manifesting it uh, through the opioid crisis in a lot of cases, a rise in suicides among the lower classes, right? And also a rise in mass shootings and violence and things like this. This is a this is a, a problem. If it wasn't, if we snapped our fingers and took all the guns away, yes, the mass shootings would go down, deaths would go down, but we would still have all these other problems and it would still be more violent than these other countries. So while I am for sensible gun control, like I think red flag laws are a great uh, idea and a great thing. Um, yeah, that's all you shake, your shake head, it's but, uh, <laughs> I, I understand this is something we'll disagree on. Um, I don't think it, I think it's uh, we can't ignore these other factors too. If we want to really solve this problem in America, we need to acknowledge that we have a problem culturally um, with being uh, okay with violence, a celebration of violence that, uh, we just need to tone down on. So, yeah. so before I let you go, Jonathan, I, we will go through every single prong of the aspects of the reason why we have mass shootings, the solutions on potentially fixing mass shootings. But is there anything else you want to add? Me specifically? Oh, Jonathan. 
about which part in particular. Why does America have such okay. a machinic so problem why, compared why to other America countries? Have, okay, okay, beautiful. Uh, so firstly, I have a, a deep ire towards uh, the comparison of America to other countries because we're so much bigger. It's 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 ridiculous. So I was in in a grad a grad level course uh, where people were trying to convert uh, compare the violence in America to the UK, and the UK has about sixty six. Um, uh, they're about uh, roughly roughly about twenty percent of our population, and they have less violence than we do. And so they said, oh. Britain is better than America because they have less violence, but there's no adjustment for population there. So I'm curious in the website that you saw that compared us, and I don't, I don't despair, uh, I don't uh, disagree with the notion that America has more violence. We do, but the, a lot of times people blow it drastically out of proportion because they don't adjust for population. I would say we have in a, a massive population and a lot of our populations that commit the most of these violences are condensed down into specifically the inner cities of um, uh, areas. So we have a whole bunch of people and we have pressed them onto a very, very small location. And there have been studies um, where they do this with sort of mice and rats and they get a very large enclosure and they have all these rats or mice spread out, and they're totally fine. And then after a while, if you slowly start like cooping them in smaller and smaller areas, their aggression rate goes through the roof, and they become very, 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 very violent with one another because it's just the just the proximity. And I, I don't like to compare humans to other animals because we're different, but there is something to be said about these what's called in criminology is these hotspot crime areas where there's just a whole lot of people and they're typically more impoverished um, and they just commit more crimes on another, another prong of one of the reasons I think we have um, these just violence problems in general is what Mr. Wick here said. Um, We just have, for some reason we glorify it. I'm very concerned when I hear uh, people talk in this very, very like uh, admiring way about like serial killers. Like for some reason, all of the young people are obsessed with serial killers and they all watch these very violent programs, very violent TV shows. And it's totally glorified on that same axis though, is what I like to call the Disney effect. So my whole generation, um, they grew up watching these Disney Channel shows where there's no consequence for people's actions. The whole premise of a lot of these shows is young kid gets in trouble and then they laugh about it at the end of the show. And so they grew up watching these programs. They grew up watching um, these very violent shows and they just have a, a misconception of reality. I see it daily now when I work at this court that I work at of people coming in and the judge asks them, why did you do it? And they just say, I don't know. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And they like assaulted somebody. They, they, they stole something. And when we apply that in a broader context and people getting affiliated with gangs and they just have no conception about consequences in the world, they don't think about it. They just do it. They just act. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, like he said, a Gordian knot of those kind of issues is why we have such a, a mass shooting problem. 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely see where you're coming from uh, when it comes down to the population and when you're comparing America to other countries. I've made the case multiple times with people who make these very blanketed statements compared to other countries. But I do think there's something to be said other than the kind of confined spaces of these impoverished areas, which I think you can basically find anywhere, of course. But Mm -hmm. the, the circumstances that I like to look at that's a lot more popular it seems in america is those individual cases of these individuals who go in these public spaces and let it go free whether it's a school or whether it's like a public location like i feel like every time there's a and i oh man i don't want to say this but i feel like every time there's like a holiday event there's a mass shooting so it's like every (laughs) single time it's like people are just crowded in this space and someone wants to rain a parade on everybody and just wants to take it out on yeah. society and do so this set, set action. Go ahead. So I'm curious to know if either one of you can, can correct me, but I was trying to do some investigation into this. So I, I'm not 100% certain about this. I just want to put that disclosure, but I was reading into it a little bit and I did find petitions sent to the Connecticut government, I think, when they were... Uh, um, these were uh, citizens. I'm not sure exactly if they were doctors or not, but they had lists and lists of like four pages of people who did what you were describing. Uh, one lone gunner going into schools, going into public areas and just lighting it up. And they uh, they attached them all to antidepressant medicines. So I know this is a very hot topic issue I, uh, yeah. of people who do that. So I'm curious to see if somebody's more knowledgeable on this subject than I, I am. I can't speak uh, to the antidepressants side of it, but I can say that I think that we're doing a disservice it's to the like a trope of medicine in general. Sure, sure, I, sure. I, I think I, I think I can I can say that we are doing a disservice in general by lumping all mass shootings into the same thing. I don't think mm-hmm. they are. I think there's a fundamental mm-hmm. difference between things like gang violence, uh, mm-hmm. where a bunch of people get shot, a bunch of people get killed, to the, a school shooting. Where yeah. uh, uh, someone comes in and starts shooting up a school to uh, a mall or a holiday event or someone driving their car into a parade. These are they all result in death. Right. They yeah. are all symptoms of violence, but they are unique expressions different. of it. And I think that they have very different causes. At I the do end too. Of the day, or very there's very different ways to tackle these things. Like there's a different way to tackle gang violence than there is to tackle the school shooter or the lone gunman that goes to the mall or goes up on a hotel yep. and shoots into a concert crowd. And the conversation unfortunately gets washed away because well, we I think is... all these things is the same thing. And I yeah just don't like that. I think this is actually something that the conservatives have wrong because usually my side is the one who, when someone's talking about school shooters, they'd be like, oh, gang violence. They're two totally different things. So I completely agree with that. And you're totally right. We do handle gang violence very differently. Uh, like I said, I'm not ex- like explicit. I'm not a professional. I was trying to do some uh, some research. And so I actually have, I created a citation list that I can send to you, Riddell. Um if you would like to post in the description, I was doing a little bit of looking. We're going to credit uh, so, y'all. Don't worry. We got you. Yeah. So I'll, I'll finish that up and send it over to you if you want to do that. Um, but 
you know, and this is anecdotal uh, from, you know, me reading the news when it, when it comes out with the people like the Uvalde shooter, people, um, all these different people. One of the things we see a lot is they are on some sort of psychotropic medication. So they're obviously I'm not blaming the psychotropics. Um, I have my own thoughts and opinions on them. But what I am saying is they obviously are not in the correct mental space because they're trying to supplement this uh, this incapability, this whatever it is, depression, anxiety, something wrong with their mind. Yes. And then, I, I and then they're getting done. I mean, yes, but this is just trivially true. People who go and shoot up a school mm -hmm. or do all these things are not in their right mind. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yes. yeah. <laughs> but but I yeah. think that you're. I think the implication that you're saying here where, oh, they're all on psychotropic drugs and you say, well, I don't think they're the cause, but the implication mm -hmm. is there that, oh, the psychotropic drugs may be contributing to this. I don't yeah. think that's the case. I think it's more of a fact that they're, they're all, they, something is wrong with them. Yeah. Well, so let me, let me, so let me, bring, let me, can I, yeah, so please. what I think is, you know, obviously they're, they're trying to supplement something and what do psychotropic drugs do, right? They release, additional chemicals into an already imbalanced brain and you know there was all these studies that did come out that i have read that proved that you know psychotropic medication and um they didn't they didn't really do much and it, a lot of it was based on faulty science science that they were hiding these big pharma companies for a long time and they actually did not much they didn't do much of it if there's no distinguishing features between the placebos and the psychotropics but the underlying assumption was that there is a quote unquote balanced level of chemicals in the brain but that's not true there isn't a balanced level there's nothing that we know that like oh this is the certain amount of all the different chemicals in your brain so we have people that are unbalanced and we're just throwing in another cocktail of drugs and then there i agree with you um, they're getting guns and that's a problem. And obviously someone who goes on a shooting spree is not in their right mind anyways. It wouldn't necessarily matter, but I think it's creating additional people who wouldn't be quite at that limit, wouldn't be on the cusp of you actually committing this very violent ask and they push him over. Exactly. So uh, Jonathan, I do have, I do have a question and I, in the future, I want to have a whole podcast episode in, on uh, mental health and drugs and big pharma a whole podcast episode we're gonna have talking about that but my question for you is if they don't take these antidepressant drugs do you believe that they won't be crazy enough to do these heinous actions so because i think even if you want to make the argument that it potentially enforces said bad action there's a threshold of said going over the edge. Yeah. And do you think they don't go over that threshold if they don't take those drugs or they go over anyway? So it doesn't really matter. So, well, I would kind of bolster what I was saying a little bit as well with another aspect that we see with these uh, these individuals is a lot of them don't have fathers. And mm. I think I feel you that when, I, I think when you have someone on medication, right? You know, I, So I had a friend who was on this, he was, he was on these antidepressants. He was on these medications. And he said, when he started taking the medications, he heard voices and he ended up committing suicide because the voices, when he was taking these medications, um, told them that he should take his life. And so his father, but his father was there all the time and always would help him when those things came because 
like I was saying before, we really don't know what a balanced brain of chemicals looks like. So a lot of times they can be helpful for people. And if you think that you need the help, if you think you need those, that's great. But I think there's better options than the psychotropic medications. So now, as soon as his uh, father left, uh, he was gone for a weekend and he was doing well. He ended up committing suicide. He ended up uh, taking his life. Some people, I think it would push them over. Some people, I don't think it would. I think it depends on a lot of other circumstances. Do you have a good family support system as well? The people who are on the psychotropic medications who obviously have these unbalanced chemicals, whatever balanced might look like, they have something wrong that they're trying to fix. And then they don't have good support systems. Then those are the people who I think it probably will and possibly does push over the edge. If they have those support systems, I think it turns out better for people. I just, I just fundamentally disagree with you. I don't, I don't know. I haven't looked into this, so this is just my intuition, right? Uh, I'm just speaking uh, based on what I can observe from medication in general. I've never taken medication like that, right? So I have no experience, but I do have an uncle who has mm -hmm. um, been on various types of medication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When he is off his meds, he mm. is fundamentally worse. All yeah. of these symptoms that you speak of. They don't go yeah. away on the meds, but they are mitigated. Yeah. And yes, yeah. the reason he doesn't take them sometimes is because it makes him feel like a different person and he doesn't mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it scares him to take it yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you know, I, will, I have... If I may finish, if I may go finish ahead. just real quick. Um, what I'm worried about, right, is I think that uh, these people are acting out in spite of their mm. medication rather than because of their medication it mm -hmm. shows that medication and i would agree with you on this right i it shows that medication isn't enough right mm -hmm. you can't just medicate people and expect it to be okay. sure you just Absolutely. can't do that right you need those support structures that you talked about we need that kind of infrastructure of community right and family mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um are is lacking in america totally like we agree. talk uh entire like we, we you could do a whole podcast on this right on the lack of communal infrastructure that we have in modern america it's just done it's gone like uh the the places where we meet up COVID killed it uh almost uh, even deader than it already was it was still dying mm -hmm. before COVID, yeah. but COVID and lockdowns just killed that anyway but yeah i i just i just worry that yeah. you're you're pointing to the 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 fact that they're all on these meds or a lot of them on these meds and i'm just taking any yeah. word for that even if that's true i don't think that's sufficient evidence to cast doubt or aspersions yeah on the effectiveness of, of uh, mental medication, yeah. right? I think yeah. people no, who are medication, take your meds, gang. That's, that's yeah. yeah, no, and I'm not trying to say, I think I want to distinguish here my own personal position. I'm, I'm not an entirely pro-medication, but that's my personal. Practically speaking, a lot of people do need them. Like you said, you have family. I also have family. And I have uh, a, a particular cousin who really does need his medication. Um, and he is two totally different people. But like you said, sometimes people who take them, you know, it helps with one part and it hurts in another part. And it's kind of like a finding a balance between that. And that's why I'm not I'm not convinced that medication is this um, big uh, savior that it's made out to be. That said, we're kind of getting aside from the point. Sure, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it, we are getting aside from the point, but I think that 
Like we can look at how uh, life was for people who had these conditions before the medication. Yeah. We can look at how and a lot of them are still going to have it's bad... massively improved. I, I yeah, just... a lot of them, these people who are committing these violences, are still they don't. I think it's a both thing. I think it's a it's a sure. combined. It's not just because they're on medication, and it's not just because they have poor family conditions. Because there's plenty of people that don't have. Uh, good family that don't commit mass violence. There's a lot of people that do take medication that don't commit violence. I think it is the imbalance of the brain, the added chemicals, the added, you know, pressures of having a very bad system of support. You know, a lot of times these people were bullied in school. A lot of times it's just this evil cocktail of different problems that all add together. I think so. I'm going to defer to what Mr. Rogan said on this subject. We have a mental health crisis disguised as a gun crisis. We have a lot of people. We have a mental health crisis in America, and I think that bleeds over into these violent actions because people that are imbalanced of the brain, a lot of times they don't regulate emotions well. So when the, these kids that are bullied, they're, they feel beaten down by life, a natural reaction of the human condition is to fight back, to be aggressive and retaliate. And then when we have so many guns in America that we do, you know, that's just the option of choice. I'm not entirely convinced that if guns went away, there still wouldn't be a lot of violence. This is something that we see in London. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to break my own, break my own rule here and compare us to another country. But in, a, in, um, in Britain, uh, I was just there. Um, they don't have a whole lot of gun violence. That, that much is true. Because they don't have a lot of guns, but they do have a lot of acid bath attacks. They have a lot of knife stabbings. They have an astronomically high theft rate. If you walk down a city street in London and you look in the car windows, or at least where I was uh, in, in Shepherd's Bush, uh, almost every single vehicle has one of the wheel locks because their vehicle theft rate is astronomically high in that area. When you remove one thing, it doesn't mean that that problem will go away. I think if we removed guns, violence would not go down. It would just shift would just shift to something else whether it be bats whether it be a lot of other things so i do want to put a pin in the uh on the antidepressant conversation because i do think that could be a conversation for later um mm -hmm. you know obviously i do fall in line very similar to what uh wick was saying i do think it's more of an in spite of situation when it comes down to antidepressants um i don't think there's a necessary i do see the logic that you're saying jonathan in terms of how antidepressants affects the mind and it can you know ruin certain chemical imbalances of course um however i don't think in terms of the you know data as you said doesn't really show for or against in this specific situation yeah. uh so with that said because that the conversation of antidepressants and mental health is like i said the conversation for another day and the the aspect of taking away all guns is completely unrealistic one thing, one solution out of the many that we're going to talk about, since we're on the conversation of mental health, is mental health checks. So my thing is, I do think mental health is a, definitely a big factor in terms of mass shootings. That is a huge component that I also agree with in terms of why it happens, more specifically with the situations we were referring to with the school shootings, with the public uh, shootings, mall shootings, et cetera, et cetera. It's a uh, character, it's an individual who is completely ruined in terms of his mental health, her mental health, and even it, do it doesn't help when these situations also have 
terrible culture, no values because the family home is probably torn to pieces. A lot of very bad negative factors play on to why they are how they are. So even though the the situation of fixing this type of environment is way more nuanced, is almost impossible to find a direct solution, one thing that can help with mental health is more mental health checks. In my personal opinion, I feel like mental health should be something, especially in like institutions like education or even the workplace, that should be incentivized a little bit more. I do think that, especially when you're young, you go to physicals, right? You go to the doctor checkup, you check your overall health. But I don't think it's necessarily normalized to, in addition, add upon your mental health. I'm not really sure in terms of medical care, how um, therapy or, you know, seeing a psychiatrist or whatever follows a line with the type of benefits you get from whatever care you have. I'm not really sure how that uh, that goes about. I do think that it's a good thing that currently in terms of like online, I'm sure you guys both have seen ads like better help, right? You see it yeah, like on YouTube ads all the time. They're trying to really incentivize this thing uh, in terms of hey, you probably should get therapy. So with that said, incentivizing normalizing mental health checks, checking on students, checking on workers, checking on individuals in general should be something that should be implemented way more. So what, what do you all think about that? I, I don't necessarily disagree. The devil will be in the details, right? Uh, what does this implementation look like? What do these checks look like? What are the consequences if you fail a check? Um, if you were in high school and you go through one of these mental health checks, right, that we're talking about, and it turns out that, oh, wow, this there's something really wrong. What happens, right? Are you taken out of the school system? Uh, what kind of... Um, you know, uh, restrictions or if any are put on you, like what access to resources do you now have that you didn't before? I would want like to like if if I if I was to weigh in on a plan like this, I would need to know these details, right? Because I can imagine a scenario where this is used in a very kind of tyrannical way, an authoritarian way to kind of shut down wrong thing and bad thing, right? I can absolutely imagine that to be the case, depending on how it's implemented. Um, however, I can also see where it's desperately needed, uh, that we need more access to um, and more ability to identify early people who are having a uh, crisis or potentially having a crisis and then getting the help they need. And so, again, it really depends on the input. The devil's in the details is, is all I got to say on that. So. so there's definitely two ways I would go yeah, about would... it. But before I kind of elicit that, sure, Jonathan, please. I'm going to let you go ahead and tell you your uh, your thoughts about it. Yeah, so I I really agree with with uh, Wick on this one. The devil isn't in the details, and I'll, I'll bring up something that a lot of so some people might know. Uh, there was recently, and I had to actually do this for a class of mine. Uh, we had to comment on regulations that were being passed down by one of the federal government agencies, and so I found this one that had to do with these online. Um, particularly psycho uh, psychological assistance such as BetterHelp and other online uh, places. And there are there's a, a group of people, um, probably not astronomically large, but large enough that they had to do this regulation. Um, these kind of sketchier online pharmacy kind of places, these psychological help 
uh, they would prescribe medication through uh, the internet medium. And young people were getting their hands on uh, medication and overdosing in, in a large enough quantity that they did have to propose regulations. So I am a huge proponent of people getting the help that they need, right? Just like Mr. Wick said, but the devil is in the details. When they find out that they have these kind of conditions, what are they going to do afterwards? Because what we can't do, especially with things like BetterHelp, other uh, online uh, psychological counseling kind of websites, uh, we can't just be prescribing medication only. We have to give them actual resources, like like Wick said. Like, what are we going to do to help them afterwards? I definitely agree that you know I'm I'm pro counseling. I'm not always pro um, you know psychiatry because you guys. I'm sure are aware of based on what I said before, my thoughts about certain things and that comes with psychiatry. I am very pro counseling. People need to talk their problems through because talking your problems through will help you figure out what your problems necessarily are. Uh, so I am very pro counseling and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, obviously I think people need to get the help that they need. If I, if I may uh, just kind of give my experience with therapy, um, I was mm -hmm. in the military for six yeah. years um and one of the services they offered was free therapy right mm -hmm. uh there was a stigma attached to it they were they were always trying to combat that stigma right like there's always mm -hmm. a fear like oh my security clearance would be in jeopardy if i go to the therapy and they, they uh, find something wrong mm -hmm. with me but um i was in a situation where i was i was very uh depressed i i wasn't mm -hmm. happy with my life and i decided to give it a try Mm -hmm. best decision of my life right it was really mm -hmm. helpful but it wasn't prescribed any medication there was nothing significantly wrong with me i just needed someone to talk to and being Absolutely. able to talk freely and with a therapist who was trained and professional and was yeah. able to uh get me the resources i needed and just be there for me was really helped me get through that experience right mm -hmm. um and mm -hmm. unfortunately right most people don't have access to it because the costs are yeah. astronomical like this is yeah. a problem um so uh, again i think that like access to therapy absolutely uh but in the american healthcare system how, who's going to pay for it right is yeah. school going to pay for it is the student gonna, is now if you are if you're young and you get diagnosed with uh one of these conditions or something um now you have debt like now you have a bill to pay uh mm -hmm. yeah i just i don't know Anyway. So, yeah, well, basically how I was thinking about it, and a lot of you, both of you guys said a lot of good things, is one, there's two routes I would go about it. Obviously, the negative consequences and the positive ones. And the negative one is more like the thing that we already discussed regarding, you know, background checks would have certain people who have certain type of mental illnesses you won't be able to get a gun depending on where you're from right so i think that is definitely an arc type of argument you can have now i'm more interested in the aspect of the counseling the the positive consequences because i do think i've heard the arguments in terms of mental health and background checks and guns and saying oh this is kind of the mental health that i think you are so i'm not giving you a gun and the tyranny that can go with that you know i've heard the discussions and i'm not going to focus on that, on that right now so my my thing is when it comes down to it i agree counseling and having someone to talk to is hugely hugely positive and especially would be somewhat positive for a person who's already in a dysfunctional home who's already kind of lost who probably doesn't have a parental figure that they can go to um constantly right 
and even in the workplace, because we have to recognize that there are adults, um, newly uh, 18-year-olds, even like older 30, 40-year-olds who are also very lost in life. So these individuals would benefit greatly from a conversation, would benefit greatly from someone listening to them. And that will be a huge, huge uh, bonus for a lot of people. So in that way, the mental health check will reroute you to someone to have a deep conversation with, right? And my other thing is I do think something that is inherently valuable is purpose right my thing is especially for like people in america one of the biggest reasons why mental health is so bad is i do think people have a loss of values they have a loss of meaning people are trying to find type of meaning in their life they're trying to find some type of significance of their life constantly and when you have so much time to yourself and we've talked about it before in the podcast my thing is with people who are especially young who have so much time to just think about themselves they have no friends like i said family's dysfunctional no father figure they just are like an empty void and especially when things start going wrong the negative thoughts start pouring in they have no purpose they're not doing anything so one thing that these type of checks can also route this individual to do is one but probably if you're talking about education or work, we round them in a more efficient program to allow a lot more space and allow more, a lot more uh, individual kind of cooperation, whether it's with a teacher so they can kind of focus on set person or in the workplace to get them less stressed out. But my biggest thing is kind of rerouting them to activities, rerouting them to groups to kind of figure out activities that they can do. Um this will be huge, not just staying at home and playing video games, not just staying home, you know, on your phone, on social media or watching YouTube all day, but all actual human interactions, actual conversations with different people. These type of things could be hugely beneficial in establishing a sense of purpose immediately for a, per for a person who is kind of lost in their own thoughts. So. These are kind of two things that I think will be innately valuable, especially for the young in school, especially for the people who have dysfunctional homes, no father figure, who are kind of doused in their negative thoughts. And even in the workplace, if we really want to go there, where these individuals who are basically alone, it's even worse for like adults who are alone because they actually have nowhere to go. If they have no family, they have nowhere to go. So that's kind of how I would kind of route them into more positive ways to kind of check their mental health in terms of the negatives that that one's a lot more of a nuanced conversation. Um, if immediately we deem them a threat, what should we kind of keep them from? I do think that's a conversation to have, but I think that is a good step as for kind of the paying. I mean, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, taxes just got to go up. It just got to go up. That's that's all. That's all. Hey, you want better mental health? Taxes hey. got to go up. It, it is what it is. So that's that's a important thing for me because I mostly see these at public institutions, like uh, public education, um, and then private institutions or workplaces. If we incentivize a certain type of stigma, then they will implement it as well. If if it becomes popularized enough, if uh, if we kind of deem it a necessity for society as a whole, then these institutions will adopt the same type of principles. So that is kind of how I 
would go about the the mental health checks and what follows. Of course, there's way more details, but that's kind of the broad brush. So, um, what do you all think? You guys, would you add anything? Would you change anything? How would you guys it's, go about it? It's it's again, it's 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 a hard thing to to kind of to kind of tackle. Um, I will say this on on the state of uh, mental health in America and how we treat mental health in America now, right? Um, I think we one of the problems that we don't talk about enough is the what I like to call the ooification of mental health, where you have the people who are least affected by a problem be representatives of that problem. Faces of autism, for example, most most autisms you uh, autists you interact with are highly high functioning autism, <laughs> but that's not who needs help the most. The people who you don't interact with because they're literally incapable of interacting in a normal way, right? Um, they exist, they have a lot of problems, but their, res their problems are being swept under the rug because the face of their problems are people that don't share their level of, hmm. of need. And we see this with ADHD, we see this with um, other uh, forms of mental illness. We are the having these conditions is seen as cutesy wootsy. Oh, look at me. I have, I'm a little bipolar. Ha ha ha. I'm a little, uh, I'm a little autistic. Ha ha ha. That's cute. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's something to be worn as like kind of this badge of honor in a lot of cases. It gives you this weird social currency, mm -hmm. but it's causing us to look at the, the least important aspects of these problems. I don't, I don't care much. I, I, maybe this sounds cold, but I don't care much right about the the highly super high functioning person with ADHD who has maybe a little trouble in school yeah that's sad for them what i care about is the people who literally cannot function in our current system they are being vanished they are being disappeared by the system and by uh, any kind of advocacy they are it it bothers me and i wonder and i worry that any system which we implement is going to fall along the lines of we're going to help the people that we see that we know of but who need it the least and that's my concern if that makes sense i definitely understand that problem one thing that um we would have to consider to kind of regarding these mental health checks in my opinion is getting these people to the check so that's a that's a big thing that you kind of mentioned uh especially trying to identify who needs it right so in these situations, I mean, I think the only thing you can really say is it has to be kind of periodical, periodical, and it has to be for everybody. So I do think that is a very good thing to kind of bring up because sometimes, like you said, we do kind of overshadow the people who are truly struggling and then the people who are not as bad, but really, really loud. And there's a lot of groups that we can kind of identify that kind of equate to that kind of make the either yeah, situation yeah, worse or specifically i'm not gonna say any specific group but we know who they are so uh yeah they, they kind of just make things worse so mental health is a big part and if we want to implement a system i think mental health checks is a big starter but the biggest solution at the end of the day will be establishing better values fixing mm -hmm. these uh you know impoverished areas in the sense that they're you're having so many kids grow up without a father or a stable household or a stable home. So fixing these will be much more cultural than any type of policy will fix at the end of the day. But speaking of policies, 
how do we feel about ARs? How do we feel about it? Do we think Americans should have ARs? Yes. Uh, yes, but uh, I think that uh, we need uh, some sort of gun license or some sort of like uh, restriction on um, who can purchase them or not. I'm not. I'm okay with people having uh, assault rifles, even like um, very uh, lethal uh, implements and tools. Uh, guns. Guns are fun. I like guns. But much like we have a driver's license to drive a car, we should have a license. To own and operate a firearm. So why why do I like I I'm I also used to be in the military. I also do like guns as well. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm always curious about and either one of you guys can answer this. Why do we need people walk around the street with an AR? Like why? It's we don't need it is the issue, right? But we don't like we also don't need people walking around smoking or walking around drinking or or all these other things, we allow it. And I think we should, if they are able to demonstrate, right, that they're not going to uh, be a danger, right, to the public by using and operating these. So I think that if you are able to demonstrate you're not a danger to the public, um, then yeah, that's fine to allow them. But again, I think it's something you should have to demonstrate. You Mm -hmm. should have to be like, I am capable and responsible enough to own and operate a firearm and therefore, right, uh, I'm able to, I don't know, pass the test. I don't know exactly what it would look like, but uh, more hoops than we have now, which is basically in, in a lot of states, I want a gun. Cool. Here you go. Right. So I would, um, I don't want to ask because this is the internet, um, but we do have actually they don't just like give you the guns like if you go to a gun store to purchase a gun uh not saying necessarily that i speak from experience but um it may or may not uh tragically i think i lost a couple of mine in a boating accident um but they do put you through a federal background check when you go purchase the gun so it's not like they just give them to you uh there are some states that do allow you to sell guns amongst yourselves uh, my fine state does allow that. Um, don't worry about what state that is. But there's a couple things on why. But there, just to clarify, is there background checks for private sellers? There's not. Some states do require background checks for private sellers. But if you, I think that's only Maine. Yeah, it might be. There's very few for permitless carry for permitless carry. But go ahead. Yeah. So there, there's very few that require private sellers, but if you want to be a licensed seller, you do have to go through and get a bunch of certifications. Secondly, um, just because you have a license doesn't mean uh, we have a driver's license, right? But at the court that I work at, which is a relatively smaller court compared to other ones because I live right in the suburbs of a city, uh, every day there's at least 10 people that come through that were driving without a license. They had a suspended license and they come and they drive just because you have a license or something is not a guarantee that people will abide by that. You know, there's a person that came in today uh, that had a, a case that thick of driving under suspensions. All they do is drive without their driver's license. Just because you have a license doesn't mean uh, that people will abide by it. I understand the principle. Don't get me wrong, because most people, uh, they will 
abide by the law just because the law is there. Still, the people that are going to cause the problems, though, aren't going to abide by that law anyways. Like the states. Like no, the state. I disagree. I just fundamentally disagree with that. Like, look, we can look at the gun violence problem as not just a mass shooting problem, but mm-hmm. also with suicides. Um, mm, yes, the, that is the, most gun deaths and, are suicides. Yes, it, with guns, right? And yeah. without access to a uh, an instant, right, which is the problem with it. It's, yes. It goes from thought to action much more quickly than, say, a rope would Absolutely. or other. Uh, I don't want to get too morbid details right but there's a reason why guns are far more lethal yeah. and it's not just because yeah. of their power but it's because of their instantaneously yeah, so when we talk I about making gun license like and most people would abide yeah. by that i think that people who aren't criminals right who aren't necessarily violent but who are um otherwise having an issue their yeah. lives are absolutely going to be saved by requiring yeah. Sure. And I don't know the statistics, particularly on the suicide gun death rate. I would imagine, though, and I I hope I don't know if you can tell me, I think a lot of people is it's uh, actually kids getting their parents guns. So that license, Uh, I'm not sure. Suicides? I don't think so. Um, I don't know, though, out of the top of my head. I I don't either. Accidental shootings, that's a problem, right? But that's a, again, it's a different issue. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just know a couple of like personal stories myself of of, of kids who got their parents guns, which is horrible. And those parents should be punished for that because you should carry and, and, and uh, uh, protect your weapon in your home. You should have it properly stored. Absolutely. Um, my other thing though, is there, there is a difference between the cars and guns thing because we have the second amendment, right? Which grants inherently a right to the firearm. We don't have a right to a car that's not enshrined in the constitution or the bill of rights. We have in the Bill of Rights, number two was the right to bear arms. Now, I, I kind of take this from this approach, right? It says the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. And then it mentions the militia. And so states and, and principalities in, in different cities and stuff like that, we're supposed to have militias. And the way that I take that, right? So some people will say that is, you know, um, the Air National Guard or the National Guard. I don't really look at them as militias. The way I think of it is is groups of people who are patriotic, they love our country, and they take the time to diligently practice with that thing. I In, in my state, we just um, got rid of the requirement to conceal carry with the CCW. You have the right to constitutional carry. And I'm really iffy on this because on one hand, uh, you know, CCW, that, close combat weapon? What are you talking about? A concealed carry weapons permit. Ah, got you. Okay, okay so different states call it different things. That's what it's called in, in my state. So CCW. So in in my state, uh, you needed a CCW to uh, conceal carry a weapon. Uh, they just got rid of that, uh, as, as did, um, I believe, at least half of the states now, or around about half. Uh, oh, no, yeah, exactly half. Is it exactly half exactly right now? Yeah, I think above so, half actually. I think it's twenty six. I think I think it, I was about to say I think it might be twenty six. Um, but you don't need that anymore, and that's kind of scary to me because you know half of those people are going to who carry the guns are going to be people that already have their CCW, but there's going to be another whole half of people that are going to now carry guns because it's easier, and those are the people that worry me because they're not going to be trained. I never hesitate as their as to their right. 
because there is a right in this country to own and protect yourself. But you also like, so I, I brought this up on the last podcast that unfortunately the podcast in which we fixed all of the world's problems and it unfortunately got lost. Um, I said <laughs> that freedom is the freedom to do what you ought to do, not the freedom to do whatever you necessarily want to do. And so you have the freedom to carry this gun, which means you ought to be good if you're going to use it. If you're going to do anything, my my Bible says, if you do anything, anything you find your hand to do, do it thoroughly onto all of your might. Just do it to the best of your abilities. So if I'm going to take on the responsibility of carrying a gun everywhere I go, I want to be absolutely sure that if I need to use it, I will use it 100% the way it was intended to do with perfect proficiency, which means I have an obligation to be very proficient with that. And the problem is, is we have a bunch of hee-haws that like to just carry around guns and do whatever they want to do. And you know what? They have the right to do it. And I would rather have that than be under a state in which I don't have that right. Because still, even with that, most people won't go and commit murders with that gun. They'll just have the gun in their house and probably never touch it. You know, we saw 5 million around about new gun owners in the time of 2020 and the COVID pandemics. Most of those guns are probably still in their box. They never got taken out. They just have them. That's what most guns are like. Most guns sit in, a, in a, someone's closet in someone's drawer and never get touched. But the ones that do get used, I think people have a responsibility if they're going to carry it and take that next step. They have, a, they have an obligation to be proficient with it. And I think they should, I agree with you, and I think they should demonstrate that uh, that proficiency uh, yeah. in some sort of uh, test in order to carry around. I am against, right, mm -hmm. this idea that um, we, you could just willy-nilly without any kind of license just carry it around. I think you should have the right, everyone should have the right, right, to apply for and have a, a chance to get a gun. But that doesn't mean, right, that there shouldn't be any restrictions whatsoever. I think you and I could both agree, perhaps. Right. That mm -hmm. someone who is uh, on the terrorist watch list should not be able to purchase a firearm. Yeah. 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 I think as so, long as it's a legitimate terrorist watch. list. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like you can imagine like um, an Osama bin Laden type. Right. Like yeah. who's literally coming here. Right. Has has a history of violence in their home country that has done uh, a lot of terrible things is a member of terrorist groups and organizations. Yeah. We should probably say, hey. This person, even though they become an American citizen, should not have the ability to carry a weapon in the yeah. streets. You know, I agree. Yeah. My thing is we kind of already do have those kind of laws, right? And so the cities that have some of the strictest gun policies also have still most of the violent gun crimes. My concern is this. When we're adding more gun laws, uh, we're only going to be adding them to the people who already abiding by those laws but we're not adding them as you said with yeah. the ccw permit that's being yeah. taken away we're yes. removing them and yeah. that's a problem yeah right? the i'm saying in general the conversation mm -hmm. when people are saying uh that we need to add more gun laws we need stricter gun policies um we're only going to be preventing the people who are going to be law-abiding anyways. I have uh, members, I have a very massive family, so my family encompasses the whole of the American experience because we have like 500-plus people in my family. My grandma and her siblings were very productive people. Um, he got in trouble because he illegally bought a gun. 
uh, and he wasn't uh, he was one of these individuals that was uh, ineligible to purchase a firearm. And then he got arrested with the firearm because he went and, and bought it in, in a back alley in a big city near me. Um, yep. So I, I agree. I'm actually pro CCW. Uh, I will be getting my CCW when it comes out, even though I don't need it, because I want because firstly, it makes law. So I'm I'm in the criminal justice profession. I'm in school for criminal mm-hmm. justice. I work a lot with police officers. It makes police officers much happier when you say, officer, I have a firearm and here's my CCW. They immediately know that this person is responsible. So I'm actually pro CCW. People should go out and get it because in the CCW in, in my state, when you get it, you have to go take a, a certain hour um, um from a usually it's the sheriff's office they'll teach you a whole course it's usually a day or two and you get on the range and you demonstrate proficiency i'm totally pro that um but i don't think that that should be a requirement to get a gun i think if you want to carry the gun around i wouldn't be opposed to that at all Mm. i don't see why you would be like slinging a rifle on your back and walking around downtown wherever um but with people who want to carry around handguns what was that (laughs) Because America, I mean, like, look, again, it's, it's, I understand what you're saying. And I do, I am not anti Second Amendment. I think the Second Mm -hmm. Amendment is important. I think freedom to uh, be able to purchase a firearm is important. But I don't think that that shouldn't come with some restriction or the state and the government's ability to uh, at least limit it in some way because again we talk about mental health as a cause for these things mm-hmm. access yeah. to firearms and you're right where the violence would just shift but it would shift to a less lethal type of violence sure. still bad yeah. right none of these laws mm-hmm. none of these solutions that we put in place none of these restrictions is going to entirely eliminate the problem i i will cop to that i will fight that bullet it's just not going to happen we're never not going to have violence with us but we can mitigate it and we could take some steps to at least try and solve this problem because at the end of the day right we need to be able to try different things to see if they will work and then we can look at but- it we can means test it right and then mm-hmm. if it does work, we can uh, apply it to the to other places. And so, so it, yeah, go on. Let me uh, let me go. Let me hop in here. So a lot of very interesting things. To, and um, after I say this, we're going to go into some specific laws, including red flag laws, including extreme risk laws and including which uh, what do back what should background checks prevent or what? should background checks show to prevent X, Y, and Z from getting said gun. So we'll go into those three things and see how helpful they can be. But my thing in terms of what you were saying, Jonathan, because I've definitely dived into the Second Amendment, and I'm not anti-Second Amendment either, um, but I, I do question people's interpretation of the Second Amendment a lot, to be completely honest. Um, I have saw that the Second Amendment had like two main theories, and now the the first theory was mostly kind of centered around the idea of a state militia mm-hmm. and having the ability to, at the end of the day, fight against the federal government if need be. And then the second theory was more individualistic and every person should individually have the right to have a gun, right? Yes. Nowadays in America, everybody loves a second theory. That is the popular norm. That is what people want to kind of say. That's exactly yeah. what it means in terms of the Second Amendment. And my thing is, 
that's fine and all but at the end of the day the purpose behind the second amendment obviously was obviously to, to deter a potential tyrannical power from infringing their type of tyranny on the, the people mm -hmm. right so that's i understand that aspect of it and i understand the aspect of saying that it's a right and it's an it's because it's a right we should have this in place for in terms of uh, gun laws, right? But I never think that's a good enough excuse. One, because the interpretation is a little, you know, shaky. And two, the amendments can be, or the Bill of Rights and things that it's in the Constitution, there's a amendment in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights itself, is saying that it constantly can be updated. It constantly can do, it can update itself for the betterment of the people. So I'll never agree with the aspect of taking away everybody's guns. But I also will never agree with the aspect that, oh yeah, the Second Amendment says this, so I should have my gun and no government should say anything about it. That's absolutely foolish. Because even the First Amendment, which has the freedom of speech, has placements in there, and we've talked about it in the Shadow Realm episode that will never appear we talked about the three things that free speech doesn't cover. It doesn't cover the ability to incite illegal actions or tell people to do illegal action. It doesn't cover um, emitting uh, obscenity. And it doesn't cover, um, you know, violence, obviously, right? So at the end of the day, we can definitely find things that these amendments don't give an absolute right to the people. Yeah. And my 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 overall reason why I'm pointing this out is because, like Wick said, we should always have deterrence for the problems that we're having. There won't be a complete solution, but the mm -hmm. solution of everybody should have a gun and go willy nilly doesn't seem like it's actually helping the case. It actually yeah. seems like it's being it's. A lot more problematic than helpful and even if you look at the cities because at the end of the day in terms of gun violence it's mostly those inner cities like chicago like you mentioned right and those situations sure but i don't think that's a gun situation that's a lot more i think that's a definitely yeah, culture situation sure but everywhere else i think you could argue that's a more individualistic and it's a more of a gun situation and gun laws yep. would help in those circumstances more so so i so couple things if i may if i may go for um it. um people can i i encourage you to fact check me on this but we drop down very substantially when it does come to if we remove the gun violence from those big cities we drop yeah down we drop down a lot on the list. yeah um on the interpretation of the second amendment uh, i like to defer to the other writings of the founding fathers to see what they meant when they when they wrote these things and I believe it's John Adams uh, who was after he wrote um, that amendment. Uh, and there was a private citizen who sent him a letter asking clarification as to like what he was allowed to own when it came to weapons. Um, and this is obviously in the 1700s. So they didn't have ARs. They didn't have these things. But what was a very cutting edge piece of technology were, were long cannons. And he, he, he this was a private citizen who wrote John Adams asking, am I allowed to own cannons to like put on my property to put on specifically, he was a merchant to put on his merchant ship. And John Adams wrote essentially, excuse my French, but hell yes, you're allowed to own a cannon. And so that would be 
equivalent to a lot of the more modern technology that we have now because that was the cutting end cutting edge technology back then and so you can look up that letter um but a private citizen wrote requesting the right to defend his merchant ship because at this time there was the Barbary War going on where merchant ships uh, that flew American flags were being targeted by pilots from or pirates from Tripoli. And so they wanted to be able to defend their property. And the cutting edge technology of the time was the cannon. And that was covered by the first or the Second Amendment, rather. Uh, so I, I am probably you guys already knew that, but I am pro the interpretation that people are allowed to own things as long as they they don't give up their rights to be citizens, right? If you commit offenses, especially felonies, you're giving up, you're saying, I don't care about this social contract. And I think you should certainly be excluded if you're charged with these serious criminal offenses, because you have said that I don't want to be an American because I'm going to violate America's laws. There are exceptions. I'm not saying that, but when it comes to law abiding citizens, I think they sh- do have the right to own what they are able to and have the means to afford. So, so if someone can afford, just real quick, someone can afford a tank. Do you think mm-hmm. that private citizens should be able to own and operate a tank? Yes. Like an A1A1 Abrams, basically. Yeah. yeah. What about a fighter jet? What about a, uh, a F-16? Yeah. If for whatever yeah. reason they got their hands on it, could afford it, and bought it Absolutely. from the military, they should be able to own and operate this? As long as, as, long as they have the, the capacity for it and have proven that they are like, you know, citizens of the United States and they haven't committed any serious offenses. Sure. What about a cruise missile? Yeah. Okay. I just, I just, I, I don't know about this. anything you like, say. I, I'm going to take the most, extreme, most ridiculous okay. position. I love the me. consistency. Zoops, baby. I love the consistency. I love the consistency. Um, inherently though, um, I think for the most part, using that situation, and I'll be very interested to see that quote, of course. I'm not saying you're lying, but I'll be interested to see I'll what John Adams has to say. To Sounds good. Um, but that is relative to the circumstance and the situation. Like you said, pirates were involved, and the situation of the United States was very different compared to current society. And that's why I believe um, it was the 10th Amendment or 9th one was talking about, hey, we probably should keep on updating the Constitution based on relativity, yeah. relativity of the times. And relative to the times, a person having a cannon on their front lawn is absolutely ridiculous you you won't you won't see people doing that so i i definitely understand in a perfect world i do think what you say makes sense but i think people are stupid so i don't want people to have these things so that That's is a valid argument <laughs> so and then at you when you take into account how how the united states is with how and with the the mental illness problem, I doubt John Adams even knows what mental illness means. So when you take that into account with the current society, because we have first world problems, the United States mm-hmm. back then, there, those were first. World. We have first world problems. Our first world problems is people being very, 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 very depressed because they have no life. That is our yeah. first world problem. So yeah. with that said, I do want to get into the topic at hand in terms of the policies and you you already listed a lot of things that you don't mind people having so do we think stuff like uh background checks stuff like extreme risk laws which um if a person's extreme risk their guns are taken away and and, um red flag laws in terms of uh, taking guns away do we think these are good policies to deter bad actors from having a gun 
devil's in the details. I keep saying this. I know it's it's frustrating, but the devil's in the details. You can have a good red flag law, and you can have a very poor red flag law. You can, can you elicit an example of both? Um. I am not familiar enough with state laws and specifics of red flag laws to give you very specific examples, but I can give you a conceptual example. Would that work? Yeah. Like, so I would say a good red flag law, right, is one that say um, you have been uh, reported, right, and have a, uh, uh, what's it called, a restraining order against you from your significant other because uh, they've reported multiple counts of domestic violence, things like that. I think that the state has the ability, right, and has the responsibility to keep you away from a firearm, right, and say, hey, at least until this is resolved, you're not allowed to own a firearm. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Uh, an example of a bad red, red flag state law is like, oh, uh, well, you, you see, you've had a lot of noise complaints from your neighbors, and, uh, you know, I don't think that's a very good thing. So, you know, and, and also you've had this diagnosis of ADHD we really should. We really don't. Maybe once you have any gun, I think it's poor. I think there's a poor implementation of a red flag law. I'm not saying that any states currently do this. I'm just saying that I can imagine a situation where you have silly kind of reasons to keep away someone from a gun that really don't apply. I think when it comes to a red flag law, it needs to be specifically things that are threats to actual violence that we can demonstrate have led as stepping stones to violence in the future, such as right threats making threats like calling in a bomb threat or something, calling in a bomb threat to a school or uh, making threats against coworkers or significant others. Um, if that can be proven, right, and documented, then I think that, yes, uh, red flag laws should apply. That. What do you think, Jonathan? So in his first conception, I would agree with that, right? If you have a neighbor that you found out had a firearm and you know that he's got a TPO or, or a restraining order or, you know, a no contact order or shouldn't legally because he violated law, right? He, he, he said he made the decision that I'm going to break this law. I'm going to commit domestic violence. I'm going to do aggravated uh, burglary or something like that and prove that he does not care to be a citizen of the United States and abide by our laws. Then, yeah, let's take away his, his firearms because he's proved to be a threat to himself or to others. But, I, I also agree with what he said, you know, the, the second conception, the conception or the conception of red flag laws that we see reflected in some states uh, recommendations for what it is, is a simple reporting thing. Right. So you go down to the judge and you report, hey, this is a red flag. And, you know, in all honesty, if I had conversations with uh, uh, people, say, of my college campus, I would probably be considered a threat. You know, they would be concerned about me because, you know, I am an ideological Nazi and I am a threat, an imminent threat to the to the democ our sacred democracy. And my guns would probably be taken away. Um, I don't think that's true. I think uh, obviously, obviously, I don't think that's true. Um, that's my worry with red flag laws. Right. Um, that depending on. And this is one of this goes back to I think the, you know the partisanship whatever whatever um, party is in power when that passed is going to reflect their ideology in the law that gets passed. So if it if it's Democrats, they're obviously going to try to ward it so that it targets Republicans and vice versa. So I think it, it has to be. It's like you said, the devil's in the details. I think you know we do have an obligation. The state has an obligation to protect its citizens, and if 
someone who is not going to care about its citizens and violate the laws of that state constantly. I don't think they should have guns. I, this is where I can agree with anybody who says those sorts of things. I will, I will, I will only uh, contest uh, one part of what you said there, right? I think that in certain cases, reporting without a conviction should be enough to at least temporarily ban your access to guns. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. um, someone who hasn't yet had the restraining order, but a woman comes in, bruises on her face, a black eye, right? Yeah, says, yeah. My husband is threatening to kill me. There's no conviction, nor should yeah. there be a conviction without a trial. But sans conviction, the state should be like, hey, until this resolves, you should yeah. not be able to own a gun. I understand that there is risk of this being abused. I get that, right? But we have to weigh the potential abuse of the system with the good that can come mm -hmm. from the system and mm -hmm. the harms from not having this system in place. And I think right yeah. now, domestic violence and dom domestic uh, inter... I, I forget the, the buzzword for it. Inter-partner violence, I guess, is what they call it now. Um, I'm not... IPV, I think it domestic is. Domestic violence uh, is well. Still is it i'm, I'm I, i've heard different things but regardless regardless of what you call it right um we are seeing women and children be hurt and killed um due to guns in a lot oh, of sure. cases and uh yeah so yeah. i think that even without a conviction with the sans conviction if, mm -hmm. if if in certain cases i would be okay with uh the government stepping in and say okay but yeah right, and okay. in that case i would still agree with you because right it, it's still threat of violence against someone right it's still something we see the bruises right that would stand in a preliminary trial i would agree with you with there the, when i get worried about the red flag laws particularly is when it's just like you said the noise complaint by the neighbors and they find something they heard you talking in your backyard about something like oh yeah i okay. love donald trump or whatever it might be and they they give him a red flag for that i'm, right? I'm gonna be real with you i mean i'm gonna be real with you if uh <laughs> if i could report some people's tweets that i see in twitter feeds <laughs> and stuff and i'm like yo someone i don't know what should happen to this person but someone needs to at least check to check to see yeah. if this person sure, isn't sure. crazy, right? Again, <laughs> we solved that problem in the lost episode as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're just gonna hype this episode up as it's like the best podcast that was ever recorded. No, no, but, I, I say that kind of facetiously because obviously yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, personally at least I'm a big proponent of free speech. I don't think the government should be uh, arresting people for tweets and stuff like that. But I do say yeah. that there there are causes, right? And I, I say that to say this: that there are red flags that you can see in someone, right? That you absolutely should tell someone about. So regardless of yeah. whether you believe in red flag laws or not, right? If you see someone acting out of pocket and you think that they are a threat to others, tell someone. Don't keep it yeah. quiet. Don't don't um, just worry. To, well, maybe I'm just overreacting. Maybe I'm just being a busybody or a Karen or whatever. If you think that someone is a legitimate threat to other people, tell someone about it. Yeah. So absolutely. before you say something, Jonathan, I think a key mm -hmm. component here, because it seems like we're, you both agree at the end of the day, if they are, you know, showing a sense of threatful action to a certain degree, then, yeah, probably should take their guns away. Um, obviously, the details that you both mentioned is to determine 
what that line is in terms of threatful action and then what that line is in terms of mental illness that could lead to threatful action, right? So how do we use these laws in trying to preventing these bad actors from obtaining a gun to help deter mass shootings? Well, I think that, uh, again, right, um, empowering uh, the police, right, uh, and other institutions, uh, law enforcement institutions to basically uh, prevent the sale of firearms and in some extreme cases confiscating the firearms of people who have been um, deemed a threat uh, a credible threat uh, I want the threshold to be high for that I do right I don't want just any willy-nilly oh he made a mean tweet about me on Twitter right I don't want that to be the threshold I want the threshold to be much higher than that but I do think there has to be a line where we say okay this is too much the threat of violence is too real we at least temporarily have to come in and take this person's guns. So I want to add to the scenario a little bit, and then Jonathan, obviously, you can answer. Should guns be taken out the household if not the adult is a bad actor, but the kid is a bad actor? I would say no. But what I would say you could do is um, ensure and, and sanction the adult to properly lock and have them in a safe. Require that you be in a safe. Mm, no, I, I, I disagree here again. I think that when you are a parent, you have responsibilities. And one of those sure. responsibilities is to make sure your kid doesn't do stupid shit. Right. Uh, excuse my French. I apologize. Uh, but I think that um, if your child has demonstrated that they are a threat, that yes, it's unfortunate that your rights have to be restricted a little bit, but they will have to be restricted a little bit in this case, sure. because you um, if the child is living with you. Right. It, it, it's just a, a necessary step. It sucks for mm -hmm. you, no doubt. But um, so, again, because you are a parent, there are certain things you have to do and responsibilities you have to fulfill that if you were not a parent, you would not have to fulfill those things. You get tax yeah. breaks for being a parent, right? So uh, with great tax yeah. break comes great responsibility. So. so what I would say to that, the way that I would, I would come at that is I agree, right? Parents uh, have the obligation. They, they have responsibilities that they otherwise, uh, otherwise you wouldn't have. Right, but it's not the state's job to ensure that the parents are doing their job. That's yeah, the parents' yes, job. Yes, it is. Like I, if no. a, if parents are not feeding their kid, the state has a responsibility yeah. to make sure that that kid gets fed. It's absolutely this in the in the interest of the state and the community to make sure that the parents are mm -hmm. doing their job. Yeah. In certain circumstances I would agree. Okay. Yeah. But I I would take this more case by case. Okay. I wouldn't apply I think this is my personal, uh, I won't get into that because that's a different topic. But so if the parent has a child, right, it is his responsibility to discipline the child and make sure that they, they, they don't misbehave and, and, and act in that delinquent sort of fashion. It is not, when it comes to that particular circumstance, right, the, the particular, and I'm being very specific here in this circumstance, that in the circumstance, the parents own a gun, child has delinquent tendencies, the state should not come and confiscate those guns because that is not at the state's 
uh, um, that's not quite their domain yet, right? What the parent, I think the parent would have obligations on their own. Maybe if they believe it to be necessary, they opt to give their guns away. They opt to make sure I don't want this in my house because I'm scared for my child or, or my child might do. But that is not yet the domain of the state to come in and say you must do X, Y, Z. So parents, well, let me, let Jonathan, me you, well, uh, let me let me uh, try to widen the perspective of the scenario a little bit, because I, I like to gauge where people at when it comes to these thresholds. Right. So let's say in a situation where there's the parent as a kid, one parent, just a mother dad is gone. Don't know where he's at. The kid is a bad actor. What has he done? He gets in constant fights at school. He's beat the kid to the point where he went to the hospital. He's threatened people with knives. He's killed animals, and that small animals. He's even threatened the teacher one time. One time he says, I'm going to kill you. In this situation, all of this is very obviously very cumulative, cumulative to the point where obviously the state or the cops or whatever is getting involved. At that point, when you know this kid is a bad actor for sure, and mm -hmm. you know there is a gun in the house, mm -hmm. do you allow? If you had, if you had the choice, would you take the gun out of that house? And and I, as the state, taking the guns. Yes. Try to think of it. I mean, I understand. I completely understand the 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 concept of I want to make sure I'm establishing something that doesn't give the state too much power. But think of it basically on your own kind of point of view of the scenario, and then we can talk about the legit the logistics of the state potentially having too much power. All right. So I'm probably going to give an unpopular answer here. Okay. And so, so the the problem at this point is not with the mother. The mother owns the firearm. The student does not. This 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 delinquent is committing offenses. They are the ones that need to face the consequences for their actions, which means we might take him to a rehabilitation facility. Uh, I just got out of a juvenile justice class, so I'm familiar with a lot of them. And there are many facilities that are not prisons, but instead rehabilitation centers that are full-time live-in. If this person is killing animals, you know, telling teachers that they're violent, having encounters with the police, we need to do something to help him not punish the mother. The, the student would have no consequences. They would not understand the situation any better if we removed the gun from the house. That is actually uh, what is reinforcing the fact that you are a credible threat, but we're not going to do anything about it quite yet. We're just going to remove this firearm. That's not going to do anything for the kid it's actually just going to reinforce what about the interim like the interim between them getting the kid out of the house because sure. I, I don't necessarily disagree okay. with you i think that in certain cases uh yeah on an removing the process. child from the the from the guns is an equally valid choice but in the in the interim where they're yeah. waiting for the processing to go through sure. or waiting for these sure. things to go through what about them for the yeah. five days two sure. days three days sure. however long it takes sure. i wouldn't be opposed the guns to that removed i wouldn't be opposed to that, that at all Okay, so no, would be you can that. remove the guns temporarily until the person is extricated from the household. Sure. Okay. Yeah, depending on the circumstances, you know, how they how they sure, do sure. that. Because in some states, they'll probably just put them in jail, and which is, I don't think, I That's this is one thing. Yeah. This is one thing that I have actually changed my mind on. Right uh, when I started taking my class, I was not opposed to to juveniles being placed in jail. 
after the class. This is something I have changed my mind on. Uh, there's so much research that shows that it just promotes even more delinquency. There has to be a line where you know that there, there's consequences for their actions, but I'm not in favor of putting juveniles in jail. Um, so that's why I say they make these rehabilitation centers that are really schools that just have thicker walls, pretty much. Okay. So, I mean, from what it sounds like, you know, we definitely came uh, around a lot of um, important distinctions in terms of these extreme risk laws, these red flag laws. We don't want bad actors to have guns. And we want to make sure that guns in general shouldn't be around a place of a potential risk factor. Um, so with that said, my final thing that I'm going to bring up and then we're going to wrap up the show is yeah. the there has been some solutions that I've seen and they're called violence intervention programs. And basically, these programs are things that every community should have to kind of incentivize nonviolence. Um, try to create, you know, plans or policies in their local community to either train or, you know, get with families or basically at the end of the day, making the violence prevention aspect of that we're talking about much more local and much more uh, individualized in these communities. So in these uh, with that said. Do you believe these violent intervention programs in every community would be a good thing in terms of uh, deterring mass shootings? It couldn't hurt. Like, I don't think it'll hurt. I think it'll I, I'm not familiar enough with the programs to 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 talk about their efficacy. Right. And, and whether they work. But I don't think it's gonna make the problem worse. Uh, I think that there is. Uh, the the danger does lie in kind of like an empty calorie solution, right? Where something's proposed as a solution, it's touted as a solution, but it doesn't actually solve things. I'm not familiar enough about the program to speak to that, but that is something that we got to look into. So if it can be demonstrated that these VIPs, these violence intervention programs are efficacious, right? Um, then why not? I just, uh, again, we talked about one of the problems being culture uh, and if that can help with the culture. I'm all for it. <laughs> any any thoughts, so, Jonathan? So I I do in in some ways. If it's okay with you, I would like to take a very broad and very zoomed out uh, perspective on this. Go so, right, one of the big problems with mass shootings is gang violence, right? So most gang violence, um, well, so most juveniles uh, who join gangs are are very 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 highly, uh, they're much more likely to be violent. Most juveniles will join a gang by the age of 15. Uh, 15 to 18 is kind of the onboarding age for most gangs. When we're looking at these violent intervention programs, uh, most that's a community control program, uh, typically, right? Is that what you're kind of referring yeah. to? So yeah, community control can work great for people who have not been to prison already. Once some and so, we if we get the these kids by age fifteen to eighteen, I think they could be very effective, right? There is a very famous example. Um, once again, I'll have to send it to you because I don't recall right off the top of the noggin. Uh, but it was in Detroit. 
And it was a community that had a super high violence uh, rate at this particular school. And so the community uh, sent in a bunch of middle-aged dads. And they wore shirts that's like Detroit for dads or something along those lines. Very corny, very cheesy stuff. But that school drastically turned down their violence. Just like it was five to eight dads every day from the local community would go and they take afternoons off and spend the whole day at school. I would say that's a that's an example of a community controlled violence prevention program. Very, very efficacious. Now, if it was to be a community control program for somebody who's already committed violence, they've been in gangs and they've already gone to prison, it's not going to be very effective to, to stop that. But if we can get them when they're younger, um, then I think it would be very good. And I'd be very pro that. I'm very pro community control when we're building a sense of culture, when we're building a sense of meaning. It just has to be right. Otherwise, it's going to be this empty calorie scenario where it's not doing any good and we're just spending a lot of money on something that's not going to be super effective. Unfortunately, there comes a point when people just, their community control won't work for them. Yeah. I, I definitely hear what you're saying because I, I am not a fan of like doing things that uh, offer no proper solution at the end of the day or prov provide any proper results. Uh, this is just one of the solutions I saw when I was like doing my own uh, research with, with everything. And it talked about these type of programs. And inherently, I'm all for with establishing a sense of community, um, especially when these areas are the more impoverished areas right and the kind of loss of value the loss of purpose that i was eliciting earlier can be kind of mitigated mm -hmm. with these type of programs where you're meeting up constantly going over these situations i do hope that it's not just oh guns are bad like that doesn't okay we all know guns are bad but it starts establishing a sense of community immediately with those persons that are potential risk. And I do think you can, obviously there might be some education that goes into these programs, a, an established kind of sense of um, uh, uh, movement or advocacy group that can kind of elicit the type of prongs that you need to uh, teach said individuals and in establishing a proper community in whatever area you're in. And that, that makes it a lot more uniform and a lot more collective um, when it comes to different areas throughout the country. But at the end of the day, uh, I agree that it, if done right, it can provide a lot of useful tools for the people. And uh, one other thing that I, that I was going to bring up is what do you all think about more security at schools and more security at public areas? Um. Uh, within reason right uh i mean like there's always a balance between security and freedom um and i think that like for example metal detectors um in some schools at high-risk schools could you know possibly be a, a useful tool in other cases like a metal detector before going into a park or something would be weird um i i, I don't like that and like because you mentioned public spaces as well um so Again, I don't want these incidences of violence to change my life in the sense that I'm always afraid, I'm always scared, I'm always looking over my shoulder, I'm always trying to implement these these uh, uh, these very kind of a uh, um, invasive um, 
procedures and invasive uh, techniques to try to limit the risk to me. Fear is a mind killer, gang. Uh, quote from Dune. Love it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're always living in fear, you're not living life. It's going to affect you. It's going to make you do bad things and cause bad choices. So um, I think that, again, again, some some low invasive steps and sometimes high invasive in certain in certain incidences like with high risk schools good um but yeah otherwise uh, i know it's probably not the the best answer but it's the answer you got so there you no, go no i mean I, I definitely understand what you're saying um my my thing is i i do think security probably would be beneficial in schools in general um i remember there was a police officer at my school and you know he was just hanging around you know he wasn't doing anything crazy he wasn't eyeing anybody down for being a delinquent or anything to be fair my advocate my caveat with this is it wasn't like a high-risk school it was very suburban-y right so with that said a mixed group of people not mm -hmm. a lot of fights at the end of the day not a lot of violence but uh it's just an extra security measure and one thing that I always say when it comes down to, you know, at the very least one level, just one level of security is if you really think about yourself as an individual and if you have the resources to send your kid to X, Y, and Z or send your loved one to X, Y, and Z, if you had the choice, I feel like most people would send them to a place with plenty of security. They would even take the risk of said uh, individual to get harmed or hurt. There is a sense of potential stepping over the line in the freedoms if it goes too far, i.e. metal detectors, i.e. like three security guards breathing down your neck, making sure that you're standing the standing at attention and uh, not roaming the halls during class. Like, that's, that's going too far. We don't need any of that. But having one level of security purely for potential uh harm and potential risk that could happen i don't think that will ever be a bad idea especially in public areas that we know like schools like a park for example where we know that everybody there is not there to pro uh, protect their lives they are there for a specific purpose whether it's chilling hanging out learning they're not meant for any type of violence. They're not meant for action, and they won't be able to deal with it. So unless you have some Marine that's luckily there with an AR on his back, which, you know, you won't have that. So in these situations, I feel like um, at the at very least one level of security, and then you could potentially add more with the high-risk areas, should be a must. Mm -hmm. So I am a proponent of putting SROs in schools. Uh, SROs serve a lot of functions. My uh, caveat, can you define SROs for the people? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Student resource officers, uh, SROs. Um, my caveat is you have the, the, the metric for being a police officer, right? And for people watching, you'll see like my hand here. For student resource officers, it should be even higher. Your metrics for being a student resource officer should be much, much higher. It should, there should be higher requirements, uh, higher expectations for SROs because they're working with students. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's the reverse. It's the the old officer that wants to retire but still wants a little bit of money on the side, and they go and they put them in schools. I don't like metal detectors uh, because it's dehumanizing, um, and it's somewhat you know sometimes it's required. But I am I firmly believe 
that uh, people will act how you treat them. And this is actually a criminological theory. Uh, there's many different versions of it. There's different iterations called. Um, but if you, uh, what the most specific, the, the most common one is labeling theory. If you label someone a delinquent before they're a delinquent, they'll more likely to behave in the manner in which you treat them. So if you treat somebody as criminal, they're going to act more criminal. And if we have we have if we're shaking down students every time they enter the building and we're treating them like criminals, they're going to be more likely to act like criminals. If we get rid of the um, metal detectors, you know, there might be some preliminary issues, maybe people smuggling things in. But if we take out a metal detector and and people the reason we don't do this is because it's expensive because it's someone's salary but we put in say two or three sros who treat them like humans who treat them respectfully but yet firmly with the law i think it'll actually have a better outcome moreover uh sros are some of the people who find fentanyl the most uh which is getting trafficked into schools and killing more students um fentanyl is a crisis amongst young people who are starting because they don't know how to control. I mean, there isn't really a way to control how much fentanyl you take. You don't really know. Um, but it's getting smuggled into schools. And, of course, people are worried about school shootings, the topic of this discussion. And metal detectors aren't going to stop school shootings, obviously, but SROs will. Yes, sir. Um, with that said, do you guys have any final opinions, any final uh, things you want to say in regards to the mass shooting issue? We've discussed a lot of different things, a lot of different solutions. We discussed the importance of mental health and uh, fixing the values and the importance of establishing proper values and fixing the broken family homes and how that would help in terms of uh, mass shootings. We talked about the potential positives of certain laws to deter bad actors from getting guns, whether that's a extreme risk law, red flag law. We do kind of note that the threshold of said bad actor has to be high, so we're not infringing on everybody's rights. You know, criminals should not be given the same rights as the everyday citizen, of course. And then obviously we talked a little bit about security and violent intervention programs and how the violent intervention programs can potentially establish a sense of community as well as teach the important aspects of uh, violence for the community. And security could just be a positive overall uh, if done right. So anything else do you, either of you, want to add? Gun violence bad? Facts. No cannons. I was just about to say the opposite. <laughs> Go buy your cannons, folks. I'm just kidding. Uh, half. Um, no, I think this was a great discussion. I enjoyed this. I really uh, appreciate um, Mr. Wick's nuanced thoughts, as yours as well, Riddell. Always. That's all my thoughts are, new ones. You know what I'm saying? So, with that said, I hope you guys enjoyed today's discussion, of course. Um, we will eventually start publishing twice a week when i don't screw up the next upload of course and be back at whatever the next discussion we're going to have uh, i have a very interesting guest coming on too in the future um one very interesting one that you know i might i, I might tell you all afterwards so with that said make sure you guys stay tuned um for that of course rated five stars check out wick tv check out his content because he's having a lot of interesting debates that i do at times watch while i'm at work to see what people are talking about and, uh, 
you know, sometimes people are making good points. Sometimes people are just blabbing. You know, it is it is what it is. So with that said, uh, he's doing something very similar. Check out his content. Of course, check out my guy Jonathan's podcast, The Classic Life, right? Yes, sir. Of course. So with that said, hope you guys enjoyed. Y'all have a good one. Take care and peace. Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. I am glad you are here and I'm glad you are listening to today's podcast episode. My mission in each and every one of these episodes is to really focus on the solutions to some of the biggest questions and most controversial topics going on in our current society. I feel like most of these conversations are not truly being discussed in a more logical and respectful manner due to the political toxicity that goes on with both the left and the right, both the Democrats and the Republicans. In this podcast, I don't care about any of that. I am focused on the solutions. I'm focused on bridging gaps. If you want to join me on this journey, if you want to discuss some of the most important topics, if you are tired of the political toxicity and negativity from both sides, please support this channel, share the podcast, and go to my website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. I appreciate the support. I'll continue to make content and hopefully we can start bridging these gaps and focusing on real issues going on in our world.